Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking Riverdale and the return of the teen soap opera. Plus, we're joined by Therese Ann Fowler to talk Amazon's new Zelda Fitzgerald show, Z, The Beginning of Everything. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. How are you? And we're back with Vulture staff writer Alex Jung. Hi. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. <laughs> Hi, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, you know, we're going to get to Riverdale, which is, I think, a lot of us are excited about as a show. Um, so you should definitely stick around for that if if you're into teen soaps. Um, but first, we have a prompt. And this week's prompt comes from listener Bobby Scanlon. Uh, Bobby writes... In 2017 and the current TV landscape, there are a wide range of gigs from hacker to henchman to handmaiden. What jobs do you think are being best represented on TV? What do you think could be better? And what jobs would you like to see on TV that aren't already there? I think one thing that we are seeing just as a part of a larger trend of comedians moving to television is comedian as a job being mm-hmm. presented mm-hmm. on television in a way that we hadn't really seen in the same way before right. where you see it, you see the struggle. Um, and that also applies to other creative fields in that way, because, you know, for example, Aziz Ansari's show, Master of None, he's not playing a comedian, but he's playing an actor or a struggling actor. Right. And, and better things is also about an actor. Exactly. Right. Which, Makes sense from Pamela Adlon, who has goes on many auditions and you mm-hmm. kind of see she kind of gives you a little insight into how that works behind the scenes. And then obviously you have Louie, right. which kind of started this trend. There's a upcoming Judd Apatow show, Judd Apatow, Pete Holmes show called Crashing, Crashing that is maybe even the most comedian-y of the ones that I've seen. It's very heavy. He, yeah, because you know, he's really trying to make it. Yeah. And, and it's a source the, of conflict. Yes. Yeah. I have only watched one episode of that, but in each episode he crashes with a different comedian, which allows for it to kind of delve into that a lot more because you get insights into different types of comedians and kind of what lifestyles they have and different levels of success within the field. Mm-hmm. Comedians on couches getting coffee. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. But do yeah. you think there are too many of these? Like, have yes. we reached a tipping point? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. You think so? I think showbiz. I think showbiz as a job is way, 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 way overrepresented. Way overrepresented. I'm not saying that it's like inherently uninteresting. In fact, some of the best shows on TV in the last probably ten years have been about people in show business. And before that, even like one of my favorite shows of all time is the Larry Sanders Show, right. which is kind of mm-hmm. an anthropologically exact representation of a particular showbiz milieu. But mm-hmm. I'm just I I don't like turning on the TV and it's all about actors and comedians and it's like you know I believe write what you know is good advice up to a point but I want to see more I want to see people getting into other people's skin a little more yeah like I want to see less like di- less I want to see fewer shows that are diary entries and more shows that feel like reporting mm-hmm. generally what do you think does represent an industry very well. I mean, the, the prompt for me was, the immediate answer for me was Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, I sort of love how it skewers, <laughs> but also uh, delights in tech culture in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the various characters and tropes that exist within that ecosphere. Uh, I It's hilarious to me. I sort of would like to see 
that kind of approach taken to a lot of other industries. Yeah, definitely. That feels like a very unique show in that regard where you have people who are both in the industry and outside of it who appreciate it, you know? Yes. Like, and that definitely didn't happen for us in the media with the news. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. But I, I would love to see a, you know, I mean, as a journalist, I'd love to see a show about uh, journalists that represented it. It's not like high stakes, like every episode they're trying to, like, expose a toxic waste bill or bring down the president or something. But, like, the kind of stories that actually happen when I was a daily newspaper journalist, which is like, yeah, there are city hall reporters who are, like, covering corruption and stuff. But there was also a guy who was the fishing columnist. (laughs) And every week he wrote a column about fishing. And I made fun of him. You know, I went over to the sports department one time to talk to a friend of mine, and I saw this big mail, you know, mail basket. And I said, "Is this for the? Is this for the, the football coverage?" And he's like, "No, that's fishing." And I laughed, and he said, "No, no, no, that's actually for fishing." He's like the most popular <laughs> columnist of all the people in the sports wow. department. Like that, he gets sacks of mail every week for this fishing column. And that's you know, there's a, there's all kinds of surprising things you could be seeing on TV that you're not. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they. I think hack screenwriters uh, believe and are taught that you have to raise the stakes. And I think what they think that means is the stakes have to be politically bigger, bigger in terms of power, bigger in terms of influence. So as a result, we get show after show after show about presidents and vice presidents. But I think it would be much more interesting if there were more shows that wanted to be parks and recreation. Yes, You know, like you can all the political issues that you're exploring on House of Cards or Homeland or Veep could just as easily be explored in a show about a small town city council. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And and it might be just as funny. It might be just as exciting, actually, if you're invested in the characters. And honestly, I would like to see actual blue-collar jobs on TV. Like, I, Roseanne mm-hmm. was probably one of the few, I feel. or And Grace Under Fire. You know, there were certain mm-hmm. shows back in the 90s that I think did that well. Yeah. Uh, that, like, let's see people who have to work every day at crappy jobs um, and cycle through jobs too that they don't necessarily like. There's a lot of comedy in there, but there's also more, I don't know. I think Insecure and Atlanta are both really good at that. Right. Hmm. They're Hmm. really good at that. I was going to say something similar to what Matt said in terms of government being represented more effectively on television because as you were saying, like most of these things are really heightened. They're all about people working on either Capitol Hill or in the Oval Office. I mean, I'd be interested in seeing a show about the federal government, but it's people working like in the Department of Labor or, you know, at some kind of lower level. Right. Because I think one of the reasons that people don't understand the government or they see it as a monolith is because they don't realize that there are these individuals who do these jobs that are not high powered and elite. You know, they're they're grinding it out every day. And I'm sure there's great drama in or comedy in, in all of that. Yeah. Um, so I would love to see something like that. I totally agree. And I I feel like there could be something so funny and dramatic done on just like a limited series on the whole he- healthcare.gov website not working. And just what <laughs> happened there? Like, yeah, I would totally yeah. watch that. Well, it could be like, hey, it's a crisis. Story. It's a, cri- it's yeah, a crisis. It's a crisis. I love, I, I love stories about like, it's a disaster out. film. <laughs> yeah. It's a disaster movie. Well, I like, I just think general, like as a general principle, like, Bringing everything down five or six notches is is often a way to automatically make everything feel more fresh mm-hmm. and and often more real. And I'll never forget a conversation that I had. Oh, God, it was like 30 years ago. My uncle was a 
cop. He was a first he was a New York cop and then he moved to Dallas and became a Dallas cop. And he was a Dallas cop for like 25 years. And uh, I asked him one time, what's the most realistic representation of your job that you've ever seen? And he said, Barney Miller. Mm. And I said, well, huh? Because on Barney Miller, like basically 90 percent of the show is them sitting at their desk, filling out paperwork and having conversations with weird people. And he's like, yeah, that's pretty much my job. <laughs> he's like, I've never been you know, I've been doing this job for almost, you know, for a quarter century and I've never drawn my gun. And none. Of, and, you know, I don't think any of the characters on Barney Miller ever did either. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, in a similar way, I'd also love to see more shows that are about people working in retail or customer service. I mean, we uh, have that with yeah. Superstore. Which is a good show. It is a good show. It is. Your job is dealing with people complaining, uh, being, mm-hmm. you know, outraged about something to a disproportionate level of how outraged they should probably be. I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of material to mine there. And it, also, I love the interstitials in Superstore. Like, that might be some of my favorite parts of the show where you just, like, see a kid pooping in, a t- <laughs> like, one of the, like, ported toilets <laughs> yes. or, like, people playing with mannequins or pigeons flying in, you know, like the, the sort of right. random mm-hmm. absurdities of working those jobs. Because that actually happens. Oh, That's it totally kind of happens. Stuff happens. Oh, yeah. People who, every retail person has a story about yeah. finding poop. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think we don't see more variety in the types of jobs on TV. We don't. Just we don't. Considering how much, like you were saying, Jen, just how much opportunity there is to kind of look at the like mundane details of life mm-hmm. in through these jobs in a hilarious right. way. One of the things I loved about Friday Night Lights, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a lot to love, mm-hmm. is um, it's a rare show where they give everybody a job and you actually see them doing the job. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's not like like so many dramas and comedies. They give a character a job, but you never see them doing the job. You just see them coming home and say, how is work? Oh, it was terrible anyway. And then they talk about what's happening in the house. And yeah. you never see, you never, like, their job job is every, not actually a part of what yeah. they do. Right. And, and, and uh, Friday Night Lights, like, you learned a lot about what it actually means to be a football coach, what it actually means to be the principal of a high school, mm-hmm. things like that. And how it's tied to a town's sense of self. Yes. Friday Night oh, Lights is just so the best. Good. I know. <laughs> the gold standard. What's it another bracket it can win? <laughs> 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 So that's this week's prompt. Thanks to to Bobby for sending along that question. Listeners, if you would like to weigh in on this week's prompt or suggest a prompt for a future week, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. We'll be right back. So... Riverdale isn't a show I really saw coming. I, I <laughs> It's an adaptation of the Archie comic books, but it's way more of a dark teen soap opera than it is a comic book show. Oh, it's it not a comic book it's, show. It's, no. it's, you really don't no, have to know anything about Archer to like it or it's, follow. Yeah. I, I really liked it. You know, it's crazy because when I was watching the pilot, my first thought was, this is weirdly like the opening of Twin Peaks. And then lo and right. behold, it begins yeah. with a uh, like a mysterious death by a body uh-huh. of water. At least it's a dead guy instead. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, what's and then Machinamic shows up. I was going to say, like, yeah, a a Twin Peaks. Right, along. right. <laughs> As if to make it official. Um, Matt, you seem you seem a little... You seem. I'm. I'm curious to know what you thought of it. I was going <laughs> to say, like, what's the next word in that sentence? I, I couldn't quite get there, but intrigued, intrigued agitated, yes. nonchalant. <laughs> uh, well, you at least have feelings. Mm-hmm. I do. I do. 
I, I don't know. ever not have feelings. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I have feelings about things I shouldn't even be thinking about. So, uh, but yeah, this is a. I don't know where they're going to go with this thing, but certainly it's not what I expected. But then I didn't expect them to reboot the Archie comics and make them like a, a kind of a, almost a serious graphic novel approach to teen life, you know, which is something that just happened. And I don't know enough about the corporate history here to speak to it with any authority. But this is this is like a, a, this is a wholesale reinvention of a, of a brand. Mm hmm. And when I first heard from friends of mine who follow comics much, you know, closely, that, that, that it's like, have you read uh, have you read the revamped Archie? I'm like, no. <laughs> Why would I do that? I mean, I remember these comics from when I was a, a kid, um, and even then they were like relics, you know, like right. Archie, like jug. They were driving around in a jalopy like it was the 1930s, and they were wearing like. Their, their vision of college was from the 20s, uh -huh. practically. Like, you know, I think the comic came around in the 50s and they were already outdated. Like, they were, like, presenting a vision of high school and, uh, you know, young American life that was, you know, 30 years out of date. And then they just kept doing it. Uh -huh. You know, it's weird. It's really weird. And then, like, this, this bears really almost no relation to the source material, except the names of the characters and the setting. And the hair color. Don't the hair forget color. the hair color. <laughs> the hair color is important. It is important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my reaction to it was that it was less about trying to reboot Archie than right. it is about CW trying to get its next Gossip Girl. Yes, yes exactly. Absolutely. And when you or its think next about 90210 or whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. Uh, and the it's, OC. it's very explicitly referencing other teen shows and movies uh both with its casting and and with the pop culture references that are sprinkled throughout it and just the whole approach of it uh in a way that i i liked it just for that reason right can, right. can we talk a little bit about like what like what we're talking about here like what makes a definitive teen soap opera like what mm. are the how would we describe riverdale like it has really attractive people. That's something Alex, <laughs> which sets it apart on. from other television. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's definitely like peak CW casting right yes. now, like peak Greg Berlanti casting of like really attractive twenty somethings <laughs> who are playing sexy teens. Yeah, sexy teens. It has a. I really like the soundtrack, but it's slightly cheesy. Uh -huh. You know, it's a little cheesy, um, but it's but pretty it, good. But it's pretty good. Like it's actually. The music, it's like kind of dark and moody in this way yeah. that like I saw Lana Del Rey and Lord are on the soundtrack, but then it also has its own score that feels a little Friday Night Lights. It's, it's interesting that it's so like they do this. Uh, they do a great job of combining a sort of like poker faced innocence with a sinister undertone. Mm -hmm. And like the fact that the pilot, you know, knowingly borrows on Twin Peaks and casts one of the recurring cast members in a major role. And the title of the pilot is The River's Edge, which, of course, is the mm -hmm. title of a movie from 1986 uh, about uh, a murder in a small town involving some teenagers. Mm. You know, so this is a show that's, uh, you know, at least as conscious of its pop culture heritage as, you know, something like a Mad Men or, or Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's actually a, a smart show, I would say, in that regard. It feels very aware of what it is and like very good at enacting kind of the tropes of its genre while also winking at them. Mm. Um, like in terms of what makes it a teen soap, we, we have the relationship drama, clearly Archie, Betty and Veronica. And don't uh, forget and, the hot teacher. And the hot yeah. teacher, <laughs> <laughs> which was very unexpected, but I... 
I like the plot line. Right, personally. sure. And she has her like softcore porn star glasses yeah. on. <laughs> which I just yes. cannot get over. That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. Should we explain to people what this is about? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, good idea. Yes, good idea. yes, good yes. Idea. Basically, you, f- you, you start the episode finding out that a student at Riverdale High School has gone missing, possibly dead. And, you know, this is this is where we find ourselves. But at the same time, you know, that's kind of in the background. And in the foreground is Archie and Betty. And Betty, when we meet her, she's kind of thinking about telling Archie that she has feelings for him. Veronica's a new student who's just come to town, who obviously very immediately catches Archie's eye. So we kind of are thrown into this. I, th- I think that's that's kind of where we're at where the show starts is we're in this love triangle almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And and then we kind of the show starts peeling back layers of, you know, what happened with this murder. You have you, you start to get more backstory on Archie as a character and kind of he's not, maybe not as good as he seems. He has kind of a darker Yes, his he has secrets. Yes. His abs are full of secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And speaking of Twin Peaks references that I didn't expect. <laughs> uh, and yeah, everything is just like super heightened. Like all the emotions are super heightened. I actually heightened. would like more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would really? like them to turn. It's a little too. It's a little more mute. secrets or more abs. Both. <laughs> More abs that have secrets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just want them to turn because they're, they're getting. It's a little too obsessed with the gloominess, right. both in yeah. terms of a cinematography mm-hmm. stand of point of view, and also I think plot and dialogue too. Like I would just like it amped up just a little bit more. Um, I get that in terms of like the, the fun. drama between the. Yeah, characters. yeah. I would like fun. more like delicious well, Blair Waldorf Chuck Bass dynamics. Right. You just right. want Gossip more. Girl. I, I do. I do miss the days. Would of... you settle for Heather's? <laughs> I would. I yeah. would. Well, what I do like about it is it it obviously has a very dark tone, mm-hmm. but there are moments of like uh, brightness that kind of pop. Like there's this moment where Betty's dancing in her room, and the the music suddenly turns very poppy, mm-hmm. and it kind of takes me like. It kind of like the show surprises me in little moments like that where you you there's there's just this contrast that I think is is really well done in this way where you don't expect it whenever it happens. But at the same time, there is this kind of sadness to the show and to all of the characters that I don't mind personally. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think there's a there's a rapid fire dialogue element in terms of the references, the pop culture references that reminds me um, going back to like Clueless, for example. Yeah. You know, I the thought way you were going to drop... say Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, dropping in things like uh, calling her fifth season Betty Draper, which right. made me laugh out loud. Just, and, and, and knowing your audience is going to get that and so, you don't even have to even explain it. And then they just move right on to the next thing. That reminds me of a lot of of clueless of mean girls and, and certainly other things since then mm-hmm. it's, it's almost yeah. a little poetic sometimes where the character is actually rhyming as they're saying something which i think is kind of fun yeah <laughs> hmm. you like, love this show guys. I, I love this show and i i, I don't know it's kind of hitting a, a sweet spot of something that i haven't like it's definitely filling it's filling a void yeah that i feel like has what that i haven't seen since gossip girl 
Um, yeah, like that, which sort is of weird. Right? Yeah. yeah, it is weird. It's also a show. It's also a good example of a show. Like sometimes the most satisfying shows are shows you didn't know you wanted. <laughs> you know, that's like, why, that's like why that's why I, I like search. I that's so why I like search parties. Yeah. So that's why we all liked search parties right. so much because like. I didn't know anything about that show except it's oh it's called Search Party and it's you know it's debuting this week and I start watching it. Yeah. I'm like, what in the hell is this? <laughs> I mean I don't well, know what I thought this was going to be, but I didn't think it was. Party too. Yeah. They had yeah. like there there's a pep rally and I was like that reminds me of the vigil that I just saw on Search Party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like we haven't talked enough about Josie and the Pussycats. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I, I like love them. that that's in there too. Right. Yeah, it is in there. Right. I yeah I think that. They, the music that is made for the show is actually pretty good as well. Like, I like that the show, I I like when shows take music seriously. And I feel like it's working on three levels here where you have a soundtrack that's really good. You have a score that kind of adds to the mood of the show. And you also have these th- the Josie and the Pussycats who are making music within the show who actually feel like this amazing high school band. Um, yeah, I recently did an interview with uh, one of the EPs of the of Riverdale, and they were talking about casting KJ Appa, who is a New Zealander who plays Archie. Um, sort of, they got him out of nowhere, basically, and oh. one of the big reasons why they cast him was because he could sing and play the guitar. Like that oh. was one of the big clinching moments for them, where they were like, "This is the Archie that we want." And so it's clear that music was very much on the forefront of their minds, especially in terms of casting too. Oh, that's, interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of Josh Hartnett, just in terms of his appearance, yeah. not in terms of anything I can else. <laughs> Red haired Josh Hartnett. Yeah. Yes, I can see that. What? When was the last time you feel like we had a really great teen soap opera? Like, I feel like in recent years, the teen soaps have trended towards superhero shows. Yes. Yeah. Like The Flash mm-hmm. and Arrow and yeah. Supergirl. Supergirl. And, you know, I don't follow those shows as much. So, and I, I think the superhero elements of it I, is kind of a barrier for me where I'm not able to get into it as much. But... Yeah, I, I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts on? I mean, I really do feel like it's Gossip Girl, and then before that it yeah. was the OC, and yeah. then before that it was like maybe Nine Hundred Two One Zero or or Dawson's Creek. Oh, Dawson's Creek. Yeah, yes. I, I was actually thinking well, even the affair with the teacher is so season one Dawson's Creek. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, I feel like about... that's also been true with the movies that a lot of. Uh, I mean, there have been some teen movies that have been more on the indie side, but for a while there, most of the teen stories were being told. You know, Twilight, mm-hmm. Hunger mm-hmm. Games, like through these YA adapted fantasy situations as opposed yeah. to just regular teen life. And and I think we're now finally getting back to that mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, and this reflects that, too. But um, but it, but it's like you're defining it by another genre and you don't think of it as a teen thing, even though it actually is. I think that, teen, you know, when you say teen soap, I think soap is maybe the key word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many good soaps have there been? How many good, like, I mean, really Shonda good Rhymes soaps? soaps? Well, oh, yeah. Well, she was the first one I was going to mention as an exception. <laughs> I mean, I think she, I think she's cornered the market. Right. But and, I, and part of the reason she's cornered the market is she finds a way to fuse the soap with other things. Yeah. You know, which is sort of, she does her own version of, like, these, these fantasy and science fiction and superhero kind of things that we've just been talking about. Like, Scandal is a great soap opera, but it's also a political thriller. And how to get away with murder, duh. And, you know, (laughs) soap plus murder mystery. What I think makes teen soap so special is that it actually feels like the appropriate um, 
level uh-huh. for <laughs> for teen drama where everything just feels so dramatic sure. and like right. yeah. it just even when it's just normal life and it almost feels more realistic than a scandal type show where you know they're obviously heightening things to this insane level of intrigue right. and stuff right but like on but a national change... security is at stake <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you got know, me there. <laughs> one, one of the one of the things that the people who run the networks have always uh, commented upon is a lot of these shows that come along and they're canceled after a season or less than a season that are about teenagers, and everybody laments them and talks about how great they were and how underappreciated they were and and you know and how. If only the audience had been bigger, this show would have run forever. Like my so-called life, freaks and geeks, mm-hmm. um, programs like that. They want to know, like these network executives, like they know why it didn't take off, and I think they're and and I think the reason is that teenagers who look at my so-called life, some of them may go, "Oh my God, this is the greatest show of all time," but I think a lot of them will look at it and see a show that. They don't want to see their problems put into a mm-hmm. proper perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, one one of the complaints that I that I uh, heard uh, when my so-called life was on the air, and uh, and then later with uh, uh, Freaks and Geeks, when I would try to tell people, you got to watch these shows; they're great. When I would tell it to actual teenagers, they would say, "I watched it, but there was too much stuff about the parents." <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and when you think about the scenes with the parents, what happens in the scenes with the parents? The parents are telling them, you know, I know you're hurting right now, but a couple of weeks you're going to be feeling better. Which is true. Right. Which is actually true. But <laughs> right. if you're an actual teenager, you don't want to hear it. Right, right. right. You, don't you just want to live in the drama. <laughs> you do. You do. And so the soap is because no one gets is, you, man. Uh, right. Exactly. Perfect. You the soap is the mom. perfect thing. It is. Yeah. Shut up, dad. Yeah. <laughs> you're tearing me apart. <laughs> And and it's funny because in Riverdale, Luke Perry is kind of a non-entity in the yeah. show. Yeah. How dare you, sir? <laughs> How dare you? I mean, you know, he hasn't gotten a lot to do yet. Maybe maybe when Molly Ringwald comes and there's they, they sort of throw him into a sort of love triangle, I assume, of some sort, yes. then it'll get going. But, you know, yeah. like, he's kind of an absentee parent, and I'm fine with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's there to occasionally be like, well, shouldn't you be... Start thinking about your life, son. And then he, like, walks away. (laughs) I wanted to make you talk about your thruple proposal. (laughs) Alex Alex has a proposal for another proposal for this show. I do. When I was watching the the pilot of Riverdale, the first, like, the first very strong reaction I had, which to me was obvious, was that Betty, Veronica, and Archie should just be in a thruple. Like there's no oh, well, that makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it it's an easy, elegant solution to this whole love triangle business, especially because if if you think of Archie's dalliance with the teacher as the antagonizing relationship to the thruple, right? Right. And then right. even in the pilot, uh, uh, Veronica and Betty kiss each other. Like right. there's clearly For no reason. There's a th- no. Well, <laughs> it was a weird moment, but but I think that you can just solve this now by having the three of them into right because you can still have them at odds with an outside yeah relationship exactly yes I, I like this bring on the thruple yeah let's let's pave some new ground you know and that's this week's topic we'll be right back with Therese Ann Fowler I'm Scott Fitzgerald may I well that depends on what 
on what you've got in that flask of yours. Amazon's Z, The Beginning of Everything, stars Christina Ricci as Zelda Fitzgerald in a fictionalized account of her tumultuous life with F. Scott Fitzgerald. It aims to take the popular image of Zelda, which is that of a crazy, manic person, and replace it with a complicated portrait of a woman and talented writer in her own right, who was suffocated by the patriarchy. We're joined today by Therese Ann Fowler, who wrote Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, the book the TV show is based on. Therese, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. This is great. Yeah. So this, I just to start us off, I wanted to, to ask you about how you first got involved with the TV show. How were you approached? What was that whole process like of, of you as the author being approached by, was it a producer? Uh, I know Christina Ricci was behind this. Could you take us through that process? Sure. Well, you know, on my end, the uh, initial conversation started with my film agent. So her name is Lucy Stilla, and she's now at APA. But um, I think it was someone from Killer Films who, you know, are producing the show approached Lucy with interest in the project. And and I remember they were initially talking about doing it possibly as a feature film. Um, Christina, they told me, was attached, but I didn't know until after we actually had the deal put together that she was the one who had originally brought it to Killer Films in the mm. first place. So that kind of um, I came as a, as a really fantastic surprise later in the process. And when they were envisioning the show, had they always had your book in mind as kind of the basis for for what the show. Yeah, as I understand it, that was that was Christina's um, intention right from the start. She has said numerous interviews now, as you imagine, she's she's everywhere yeah. at the moment. So she says that uh, she saw the book mentioned someplace, whether it was in the in the Times or in you know featured in some magazine in 2013, and read the novel. And as I had been before, I started researching the book. Prior to reading Z, she kind of had this stereotypical attitude of who Zelda Fitzgerald was. But then when she read the book, she found herself really drawn to my interpretation of the material. So, yeah, as I understand it, that was their vision all along was to, to use my book as the, their jumping off frame uh, for this what became a series. Yeah. And your book, your book is a, a fictionalized account of, of Zelda's life. And I'm curious, you know, you obviously researched her a great deal. How much liberty did you take when it came to creating this narrative, like in terms of how closely did you hew to the truth versus fictionalizing it to make certain elements just a more compelling story? Yeah, that's a a really good question, considering it is a novel. And that means that, that there is, you know, obviously some invention that goes on in the process. Um, what happens when you write biographical fiction is that, you know, you go to all possible resources for information about your subject. So I read, you know, every biography that I could get my hands on, as well as um, scholarly articles, as well as feature pieces, things from the Fitzgerald's own scrapbooks. Really, if, if it exists and is accessible by the public, I feel like I, I got my hands on it in the course of my research. and. It was surprising to me, and maybe will be to folks listening to us, that even the biographies differ greatly. So it's almost impossible to say absolutely 
what's fact and what's conjecture. And so I did my best to be mm-hmm. as true to the facts as the facts could be determined. How much how much material did you find there there was to work with in terms of primary sources, like letters and diaries and such? Because you do see a bit of there's that a, on the show. Oh, there's a fair amount of, of primary materials available. Uh, the correspondence, unfortunately, um, what exists of the correspondence is one-sided. So we have Zelda's letters to Scott when they were, um, before they were married, right? So in the, mm-hmm. in the 1918 to 1920 range, but we don't have any of Scott's letters back to Zelda. And then there's correspondence between the two of them from much later in the 1930s that exists. And so, you know, I use that and I know that the, the writers on the show are also using that as a basis for, for um, mm-hmm. you know, how to put the show together. But beyond that, I mean, everything else is practically hearsay. Do you know why that might be that his letters, that there were no letters from him to Zelda? Just in terms of, did he not write back to her or there, is it just... Yeah, there they, are a couple of theories, right? So mm-hmm. one of them is that, that somewhere in the course of what was a, you know, a tumultuous marriage in, a, in some you know, fit of temper, Zelda got rid of all of their... Uh, all of his letters to her. That's one theory. Uh, another one is that she um, passed them on to a close friend of hers to, you know, to protect them because of things that occurred in their relationships. She, she wanted to keep private. I don't really know. Yeah, I think both of those are plausible, but I couldn't tell you if either one of them is true. There, there are a couple of kind of pivotal moments on the show that give us a sense of how Zelda was, was held back in a very tangible way. There's, mm-hmm. there's this, what the one scene where she does her screen test for Hollywood, but Scott doesn't want her to move to Hollywood to pursue acting. And then there's the right. scene closer to the end of the, the season where she finally does accuse him of, of plagiarizing her diaries. And I'm curious, you know, it's, it's all very compelling to watch this. And it was kind of, like, this is stuff I had never seen before, and I felt kind of this outrage on the part of Zelda watching it. And I'm curious if these are scenes that are depictions of of things that actually did happen, if they were dramatized in a way, in terms of telling the story in a way that was, you know, narratively interesting. And just if you could get a, give a fuller sense of context around these situations. Right. So regarding the, the interest in Zelda um, becoming an actress, that, you know, was something that did occur early in their marriage. The way that the show depicts it is probably, you know, dramatized for the, the purposes of fitting into the, the time that we're working with for this first season. There's so much story and we want to make sure that, that uh, everything that's most relevant gets it's due, but uh, you know what? This is what TV has to do, or what film has to do, right? Is to to make those those truths uh, as dramatically interesting as they can. And I leave that up to the TV writers. I wouldn't have the first idea how to do that if if I were if I were doing the work. Um, Zelda's interest in becoming an actress, I think, was like so many things when she was that age, just kind of a passing fancy, right? It was it was mm-hmm. exciting. And um, the moving pictures, as they refer to them at the time, were brand new 
um, as far as like the talkies and who wouldn't want that kind of attention, you know, if you're young and, and people are considering you beautiful and, and you have this opportunity to do something that's really, really interesting and puts you, puts you or keeps you in the spotlight. But it wasn't as if she'd grown up saying, you know, I want to be an actress. So I think they, they get that right in the show. Um, and the other part as far as uh, Scott, what was it? You mentioned that, oh, that he taking was from plagiarizing her from yeah. her, her work. That's that's very well established, actually. Although, again, you know they've they've dramatized this encounter between the two of them for the show, but um, many things that she wrote in her diaries went into his early work. And then there's a lot of um, scholarly conversation out there about exactly what um, of Scott's work was either you know supplemented by Zelda or lifted directly from things that she wrote, um, that's not a debate that I'm prepared to wade into. I leave that to the experts. Was was F. Scott Fitzgerald as much of an asshole as the show portrays him as? Um, certainly there were some really, well, we would call that assholery uh, behavior. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he he was, it's it's a tough thing, right? Because we watch him on the show and we think, God, he's being such a jerk to her. And, you know, she loves him so much. Why doesn't she just like tell him to take a hike, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so part of that, I think, is because of her age at the time and the life that she'd gotten herself into, right? Because she was only 20 years old when she married him. Mm-hmm. I don't know how old you are, but I know when I was 20, I was not particularly wise in the ways of relationships. And, um, so for, for every way that she's really spirited and kind of uh, a force of of nature herself, I think she was equally naive and and in many ways sort of blinded by her feelings for him mm-hmm. in terms of how badly we think she's being treated. I'm not sure that that behavior was, it was terribly unusual from men at that time. And then, you know, this kind of larger than life, uh, figure, he seemed to to feel like he could amplify all of that and get away with it. How how in, how involved were you with the making of the show? I did some consultation up front, um, but not I wasn't not you know writing for the show. And and certainly once they had all the material in their hands, it was just all right, guys. Um, they asked me a whole bunch of questions before they started writing episodes two through ten, and. I did my best to answer them from what I could recall from doing all the research. And we discussed, you know, possible approaches that they might take. And then I had to wait like everybody else to see what they were going to do with it. Do you feel like what you've seen of it hues pretty closely to the story as it unfolds in your book? There's, there are two things that they do that um, are differ that differ, I think, substantially for people who've read the book and then who watch the show, they're, they're going to see some things that come straight out of the pages. And then there are going to be places where they've condensed the story for purposes of moving through time a little faster. Mm-hmm. So for example, the um, episode in which Zelda and Scott are married, and then the party that occurs in the suite on what in the show is their wedding night, um, a lot of things that go into that scene are things that are condensed from a longer span of time 
in the novel mm-hmm. in order to, you know, because they can't spend, you know, the whole episode just getting up to getting them married, for example. Right. Uh, I was able to spend a lot more time with that in the book. So the second thing is is that um, what they have been able to do in the show that I couldn't do in the book because I was limited to staying in Zelda's point of view mm-hmm. is give us Scott's existence and situations from his his life that Zelda was not personally involved in, right? So that's one of the things that TV gets to do that that mm-hmm. that the, the novel did not do that I think really benefits the story. There's one thing I like about the show is there's this this real sense of what the writing process is actually like, just as a writer like F. Scott mm-hmm. Fitzgerald. And, you know, we have these romanticized ideas of these authors as people who wrote these amazing works, but the amount of anguish that went into writing them and the years between the books and the pressures of writing your next book isn't something we really see quite as often. And television kind of allows for you to tell that story as opposed to in in a way where you can kind of see it through different stages. And that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that about it. And I'm just in watching that, you know, I felt like that was the realest sense I got of what F Scott Fitzgerald was like. And did you end up doing a lot of research just on him in order to write about him through Zelda's eyes? I did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I read various biographies that were, solely focused on him as well as some that that you know discussed their marriage also and Zelda's um role in his life. So I, I think that that's what you have to do when you've got multiple characters from real life. And I, I did the same actually with Ernest Hemingway and um some of the other peripheral characters. I tried to to make sure that I wasn't only giving a surface level um, representation of those characters. Mm-hmm. I've read some other things in which the Fitzgeralds are characters in those works, and recognized that they were they were like I say the surface level versions of them, and I wanted to to try to avoid doing that to the other characters in my book. You, you know, you were talking about not turning these people into caricatures, just in terms of all the characters, and right aside. Aside from this show, do you think there's ever been a a good representation of Zelda in film or television? There have been entertaining or interesting versions, certainly. Um, Midnight in Paris has what I would say is a, the most compelling Zelda that I've seen. And unfortunately, also sort of the most popular version of her that I have had to fight against in um, you know the years that that have passed since the book's been out. That version of Zelda is, I think, sometimes the one that people want to see immediately. I call her zany Zelda. (laughs) And um, that's one version of her, but that certainly isn't representational of who she was. In the same way that, you know, if you were out at a party and you were a couple of drinks into the evening and, you know, were behaving at whatever your, your personal most um, ebullient self was, that's that's you, right? But it's not right. you every day. It's not you when you're in a crappy mood. Um, it's not you when you're heartbroken. So one of the things Christina has, has said is that she was attracted to this representation of Zelda because of the complexities, because n- no one else seems to have given Zelda this full-fledged um, 
you know, completely well-rounded for all her flaws and all her strengths representation before before this. So I know that that's that's what Christina is is trying so hard to do, and I know that the the writers are are trying to make that apparent as well. So you've seen the whole the whole I, first season. I have. You can tell me how well you think that they're I, getting at that. I think Christina is amazing in the role. I was really impressed by her work, even though she doesn't look pr- too much like Zelda Fitzgerald. I mean, in terms of, you know, Christina has these huge eyes. Oh, she does, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's She's about Zelda's size, but no, she, she doesn't resemble her in the way that um, David Hofflin resembles Scott, that's for sure. Right. But yeah, but everything she brings to the role, you just, you feel like she is Zelda. So it, I... I thought I felt she really brought all these complexities that you're talking about to the role. And, you know, she'll be glad to know that. Yeah. And it it does feel like we might be in the middle of kind of a Zelda moment just with this show. And I saw that Jennifer Lawrence and Scarlett Johansson are also working on Zelda films. And right. They're attached. Although from what I understand, you know, the films have been announced and there's been a lot of chatter about, the fact that we now have these three Zelda projects yeah. in the works. But I don't know that those, the two films have gone beyond announcement. I, I really don't know how far along they are, if they're going to be produced at all, or if it's, you know, still in the development stage. Right. One thing that I, I have learned um, being on the periphery of, of the TV and film business here is that in development, um, basically doesn't mean anything until somebody puts up all the money and they start, you know, shooting. So we'll see. Right. But it would be really cool if at least one of those films got made, if only to see one of those um, versions of the story. On the other hand, I have, you know, a tremendous loyalty to the Of course. Well, it's nice nice that this one beat them to the punch, at least. (laughs) I think that's right. So we're we're broadly in, we're in the middle of this real feminist moment culturally. And I'm wondering if you think the timing is right for Zelda to get her due and why you think that's happening now versus any earlier point in history. Why, you know, why now is, right. is a question that we get asked a lot. And, and I don't know if there's, if there's a good answer to why now she, I'm sure the book helped bring her, you know, to the forefront of people's imaginations. There was um, in uh, Paula McLean's novel, the Paris wife, there, you know, the Fitzgeralds are are characters in that novel, and then, um, of course, like I said, in Woody Allen's movie, we have um, again, and people are attracted to Zelda, I think, in part because she's a kind of a cautionary tale. So even in all the ways that she's this strong woman, and we are in a time where strong women's stories are particularly appealing and inspirational to us. She also did not achieve everything that she might have if circumstances in her life had been different. And in that way, I think, you know, young women that I talk to about the story in particular recognize that, that when, you know, it's, it's important to see this dynamic between Zelda and Scott and the ways that, that he kind of dampened, if not outright thwarted her ambitions because there's this movement happening in our country and, and actually in other countries too to sort of, you know, move us backward into these more conservative patriarchal roles um, as wives and mothers and to um, 
you know, recognize supposedly where our place is. And so if we see that happening viscerally between these characters on the screen, I think that it's important to say, oh, hell, we don't want to do this again, right? (laughs) Where where did that get her? Right. If, if, even if, even if we can't say why it's happening now, we can say that the fact that it's happening now can have a good impact. True. At, at least hopefully. Very true. I agree with that entirely. Have you, have you talked at all to producers about a potential second season? Um, you know, they're, of course, hoping that they'll get the order for the second season. But since we just launched, right. uh, that, that <laughs> all the metrics and things that the networks look at, you know, all that has to be evaluated before they make their decisions. But sure, you know, they already have a good sense of of the shape for the whole story, which, you know, ultimately covers the 20 years of the Fitzgerald's marriage. And it would be thrilling if they'd at least, when we keep talking about, at least get them to Paris. Everybody wants to go to Paris. <laughs> right? There, That's when the, all the Lost Generation characters come into the story. Yeah. You know, so, Are there any details or characters from Zelda's life that you you would want to see show up next season or in future seasons? Just any any parts, any stories from her life that you particularly love that aren't in this first season, but that you want to see told? Well, I'm I'm one of the things that I actually didn't get to spend as much time as I would have liked to in the book for purposes of um, kind of scaling the story down to a manageable size um, is the time that she and Scott spent in St. Paul after they left New York, uh, you know, they were trying to get their act together and be grown ups. and Zelda gets pregnant and they, they go to St. Paul to live where, um, you know, his family mm-hmm. lives for a period of time. And, and this is a place where Zelda has this really terrific uh, friendship where in the book, Unfortunately, that was a part that got cut from from the draft just to move the story further um, faster. But that that's a period of time in her life. You know, she's becoming a mother. And so there's only a little bit of, of that, those early moments in the book. And I would love to see that relationship develop more completely. She was so devoted to her daughter. Um, and yet, you know, here she was living this life with this guy who re- wanted to live large, insisted that they live large. So I think that would be a fascinating dynamic for for the next season. Of course, as I say, we all want to get to Paris because yes. for me, the the triangle of Zelda and Scott and Ernest Hemingway is one of the the richest and most complex dynamics of their life from start to finish. And casting Ernest Hemingway should be a lot of fun too, wouldn't it? <laughs> I wonder. I don't. I don't know. They must have people in mind, but nobody's telling me right now. <laughs> well, Therese, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is great. Oh, thank you, Gazelle. I, I obviously enjoy talking about this, and I appreciate you asking me. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria. This week, it's Jen's turn. The Mary Tyler Moore Show debuted on CBS in September of 1970. A few days before its premiere, the New York Times ran a spread on the sitcom and a handful of other new fall shows that featured career-oriented women. The headline above it read, 
Out of the Kitchen Ladies, which I guess was the 1970 mainstream newspaper version of, okay, ladies, now let's get in formation. That phrase tells you why that show and Mary Tyler Moore, who sadly died recently at the age of 80, were so important. The other programs highlighted for their female empowerment vibe, the storefront lawyers, the interns, and headmaster, in which Claudette Nevins played a teacher who was married to the show's real star, Andy Griffith, all ended after a single season. The Mary Tyler Moore show lasted for seven and won critical acclaim, Emmy Awards, and great ratings, all while conveying with humor and humanity that a woman's place was behind a desk with a typewriter and a telephone on it. There were programs before the Mary Tyler Moore show that focused on women with jobs. Our Miss Brooks, which made the leap from radio to television in the early 1950s, starred Eve Arden as a witty high school teacher. Julia, which starred Diane Carroll as a nurse and ran on NBC from 1968 to 1971, stood out because Carol's Julia Baker was the rare African-American female lead on primetime television. That Girl, the Marlowe Thomas comedy about a single woman trying to make it on her own in New York, is considered a forerunner to Mary Tyler Moore. James L. Brooks wrote for That Girl before creating the latter series. But Thomas's Anne Marie was an aspiring actress who hopscotched through temp jobs. She didn't represent a career woman in the same way as Mary Richards, who worked for the same station for the duration of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Unlike Julia, who was a widower, Mary had never been married. Unlike Anne-Marie, she had a consistent job. And unlike Connie Brooks, Mary Richards was working in a position that was not typically given to women. In fact, as explained in the pilot, Lou Grant had planned to give Mary's assistant producer job to a man. The fact that Moore took on such a role when she was previously known for playing the part that most women on television played at the time, the housewife, a role she inhabited on The Dick Van Dyke Show, made her evolution to working girl that much more significant. Mary Richards' presence on television didn't radically transform the medium right away. There were still plenty of wives and mothers hanging around, but it did make room for more and more single working women to make their presence known. On WKRP in Cincinnati, another MTM production, Bailey Quarters was, like Mary, a capable woman who stumbled her way upward into a job as a news reporter and had to put up with several idiot male colleagues. On Cagney and Lacey, the 80s female buddy cop show, Sharon Gless's Christine Cagney was single and job-oriented, while her partner, played by Tyne Daly, had a husband and family. In a reflection of the times as well as the path that Mary Richards had begun to forge, more and more of the moms on television, Claire Huxtable, Elise Keaton, Maggie Seaver, also had careers too. Every series that came later and focused on women navigating a workplace, from Murphy Brown to Allie McBeal to 30 Rock to Parks and Recreation, has owed a debt to the Mary Tyler Moore show. Seriously, go watch an episode of Younger and try to tell me that Sutton Foster, consciously or subconsciously, isn't conjuring a little bit of Mary Richards every time she tries to manage a crisis at Empirical Press. But what's more important is the way that Mary Richards' existence signaled to young women that the challenges of work are just as vital to one's womanhood as becoming a wife and mother. For some, they're even more vital. Women who were old enough to watch the show and relate to it as adults or young adults immediately saw the possibilities it allowed them to envision for themselves. Even if you were very young during the Mary Tyler Moore show's run, it may have acted as a beacon in ways you don't even realize. I wasn't even alive during the first couple of seasons the show was on the air. I remember bits and pieces of it, but I don't feel like I fully watched it, certainly not in its entirety, something that I by total coincidence mentioned on a recent episode of this podcast. But as I was streaming some episodes on Hulu following Moore's death, certain details, the sound of the theme song right down to that little ding at the end, the absurd arrogance of Ted Knight's Ted Baxter voice, the meow of the MTM kitty cat at the end transported me back to that time period in a way that shook me. Had I watched more of this back then than I remembered? It's possible. The TV was on in our house pretty much 24-7. 
This was an era when the term screen time did not exist. It struck me that, especially at a young age, we are so porous, we just absorb what's in the air around us. The Mary Tyler Moore show was in the air back then, and the image it projected of a woman with growing confidence, primarily presented in and defined by her professional surroundings, stuck to us, even if we didn't know it. When we had Elizabeth Marvel on this podcast recently and asked her about the importance of seeing female presidents on TV, she said the value of those roles is that they telegraph the idea that if you can see it, you can be it. Mary Richards certainly did that. They also make it clear that the perspective we're seeing has value and should be taken seriously. I was thinking about how important that is for women, for people of color, and in the context of Riverdale, for young people too. Teen soaps may be silly, but when you're a preteen or a teenager, it's incredibly affirming to see the stories of people your own age being told from their points of view. I remember very vividly the first show about teens that I was obsessed with. It was called Square Pegs. It only lasted a season in 1982 and 1983, and it's remembered now primarily for being Sarah Jessica Parker's first TV gig. But I loved it because it was so unlike anything else on TV that I was seeing. Sometimes kids got their own plot lines on family sitcoms, but Square Pegs was different because it was just about high school students and their concerns. And they talked in a specifically 80s language I recognized and made references to pop culture phenomenon like Pac-Man and Devo that I knew. We see this sort of thing on TV and in movies all the time now. We don't even think about it. It's so common. But in the early 80s, around the time teen movies were just starting to become a thing, it felt radical to me. Sarah Jessica Parker's Patty and Lauren, played by Amy Linker, made me feel like a girl's thoughts and feelings mattered. Because I saw Square Pegs when I wasn't a teenager quite yet, it made an impression I carried forward with me into adolescence. Too much screen time can be bad for our kids and bad for us. But smart television also can do so much good in terms of framing our sense of self and changing our perspectives about our own potential and the world's potential. You should still turn off the TV or put down the mobile device sometimes. Reading is still fundamental, as they say, and so is just breathing some fresh air and not ingesting a narrative of any kind. But when someone says that TV is mind-numbing across the board, remind them of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Remind them of Square Pegs. Remind them of whatever show you really loved that finally made you realize that your voice mattered too. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazelle Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt zoller Sites. I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. I'm Alex Jung, and you can find me on Twitter at E underscore Alex Jung. Thanks for listening. 